Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 89 of Carroll Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Some tickets are still available for my live Carol Pop conversation with two-time Oscar-nominated actor Michael Shannon, July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evanstonspace.com for tickets and information. Our Carol Pop guest this week is Johnny Eccles, lead guitarist for the band Love, whose third album, 1967's Forever Changes, is one of the greatest albums ever made. I am far from the only one who feels that way. Led by songwriter Arthur Lee, the Los Angeles-based Love was a rare interracial rock band in the mid-1960s. Eccles and Lee, both mixed race, knew each other as kids in Memphis and reconnected after their families moved to Los Angeles. There, Eccles played with keyboardist Billy Preston, backed Little Richard, and met the Beatles before he realized who they were. Elektra Records was known primarily as a folk label when it signed Love. The self-titled first Love album from early 1966 was a jangly, hard-charging work reflecting a distinct Bird's influence. Eccles co-wrote three songs, including Can't Explain. The single, My Little Red Book, was a driving cover of a Burt Backrack Hal David song, but Love's version took considerable liberties with the chords and lyrics. Eccles explains how that happened. Love's follow-up single, Seven and Seven Is, is a literally explosive garage rock, proto-punk, what-have-you, two minutes and 15 seconds of pure energy. Eccles, whose guitar roars on the track, details how much work went into nailing it down, particularly Snoopy Fisterer's hyper-galloping drum part. Seven and Seven Is, the band's highest-charting single, wound up on Love's second album, Da Capo, released in late 1966. That album, with its expanded lineup, Sounds like a different band from the debut, featuring jazzy flutes and far more sophisticated songwriting. Does Eccles think the Rolling Stones' She's a Rainbow owes a debt to Takapo's She Comes in Colors? My love, she comes in colors. You can tell her from the clothes she wears. Despite Love's artistic ascent, the band maintained a relatively low national profile, in part because it toured so little. Eccles discusses the role that racial prejudice played into that decision. He also addresses why Love kept trying to leave Elektra and the impact of Elektra's signing a fellow L.A. band, The Doors, at Love's suggestion. Forever Changes shifted gears again with its gentle acoustic arrangements augmented by strings and horns on several songs. Lee's lyrics reflect the flip side of the summer of love, dark references to the Vietnam War, mortality, and efforts to rob people of their freedom. More confusions, blood transfusions, the news today will be the movies for tomorrow. And the waters turn to blood, and if you don't think so, go turn on your tub. This beautiful album had a famously difficult gestation period. Why were the LA session musicians known as the Wrecking Crew brought into play on two songs before the actual love players returned to work? Was Neil Young actually hired to produce and arrange The Daily Planet? What was the creative process like between Lee, who doesn't play an instrument on the album, and the rest of the band? Why did tensions ramp up between Lee and the band's secondary songwriter, Brian McLean, who wrote the album's most famous song, Alone Again Or? 
What caused that incarnation of the band to split up not long afterward, with Lee assembling an entirely new group for the next album, For Sale? At what points were drugs a significant issue for love? How did Eccles recover from his own addiction? Eccles reunited with Arthur Lee to play in the early 2000s version of Love. Lee, who'd previously spent six years in prison on firearms charges, died of leukemia in 2006. Eccles continues to play the band's songs in what is now known as The Love Band. He and I spoke not long after he performed a torrid 7 and 7 is at the Wild Honey Foundation's Nuggets LA concert, hosted by previous Carol Pop guest Lenny Kay. Eccles has a keen memory for the creation of Love's music, even as he's keeping it alive. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Johnny Eccles. They're locking them up today, they're throwing away the key. I wonder who it'll be tomorrow, you or me. How did you enjoy the Nuggets concert? Uh, seven and Seven has sounded fantastic. Actually, it was pretty good, but I didn't. One of the things that I didn't particularly understand is why, because you see, when I'm with, with Arthur, you see, we do a double voice on the record. And also when Rusty and I sing it, we do the double voice. But we have been doing this together, Rusty and I, for over 20 years. So, I mean, we're dead on. You can't tell. You can just hear a slight difference in the timbre of the voices, but they're, they're right on. And see, when we did it at the Nuggets thing, it was slightly off. And, and you know, that was a little disconcerting to me because I'm hearing another voice and I have to make sure he's singing the right words before I do. So we're a little bit off. And so that's the only thing that concerned me about it. But then listening to and seeing the audio of it, it seemed to be pretty good. You know, I'd say I'd give it a an 85 out of well, 100. It, it sounded great from the audience. So so you're talking, Rusty is uh, who's in the love band and Baby Lemonade. So that's who you tour, you tour with when you're doing Love Right Now. And Arthur obviously was touring with you before he... He passed on some years ago as well. Correct. Yes. Yes. We've been playing together a long time, so we've gotten it down. So we can, when we do our shows, the music is spot on. And and, and Rusty's so good at the vocals that if you close your eyes, you just think you're seeing a regular love concert. When that band, the version of the band that you were in, the Forever Changes lineup, Bob, you know, busted up in, I guess it would have been 68, if not late 68. Yeah, it was closer to 68. And then we came back together and we finally finished for good in 69. I think it was December. So you played with them after For Sale came out? Yeah, because uh, For Sale sold very, very few copies. And Arthur wasn't, the crowds weren't like the, you know, love. We could fill any venue we played and all of a sudden they weren't being filled. So the management kind of, they tried to get us all back together. So everyone came back together except for Brian. He, he refused to be a part of it. And so we played one last gig at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And then we decided that it's just not working. It's not love because Brian was an integral part of the group. And without him being there, the sound just wasn't the same. And the feel on stage wasn't the same. So at that point, we just split for good. Even though years later or a few years later, we tried several times to put it back together. But, you know, once it's broken, it's it's really hard to fix. And so, you know, we had um, so many personality clashes and things that it just couldn't work. Did you ever think around that time that in the 2000s, 2010s, 2020s, you would be playing, you know, the songs of love on tour? 
Oh, absolutely not. I didn't even think I'd be on the planet in 2010. You know, we were convinced that, you know, we may see our 30s, but I never thought I'd see past 30 and neither did Arthur. So uh, everything after that is just, you know, it's just amazing because and especially to, to be relevant to younger audiences, because now, of course, most of the people from our generation have moved on. And so we have uh, a much, much younger audience audience and they know the words to the song and they sing along with us. And, you know, it, it's really just, a, it's a gratifying feeling to know that uh, after all these years that we've, as I mentioned before, remained relevant. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of those, those love albums. I mean, I, you know, all the ones in the sixties and uh, you know, the first three in particular, and you mentioned about not, not thinking you guys are going to make your thirties. You set the scene, which is the last song, you know, the, the epic that closes forever changes, which is one of the greatest albums of all time is one of the greatest songs of all time. And, and you listen to, and you think of how young Arthur Lee, when he wrote was when he wrote it. And yet it has this feeling of like someone looking back on his life. Um, and it, it just seemed like it was so ahead of its own years, just in terms of when he wrote it and what you guys were looking at. What was the reason for that? Like, why was there sort of that feeling on that record that like, this is like, could be the end of everything? Well, because we were living in a time of upheaval and turmoil. If you recall, you know, people think back on the 60s as peace and love and all of that. But, you know, it was not always peace and love. We had the civil rights movement. We had all of these assassinations of, of, you know, Martin Luther King and JFK and many others, Medgar Evers. And we also had that war in Vietnam. And so that permeated you know, the, the everything that was just there. It was continual. And we were always um, fearful that they were going to take us out of, you know, we called Oz and uh, Hollywood, you know, the L.A. music scene and send us off to some godforsaken jungle to die. You know, so that was always just an undercurrent of, of everything there. And, you know, um, there were like there were places in America, you know, we didn't tour as often or as much as, say, The Doors and all these other groups. And people thought, well, we didn't want a tour. And no, nothing could be further from the truth. We were not independently wealthy. And music was our livelihood. And we needed to play in order to live and take care of our rents and cars and all of that. But most of this country, because we were an interracial group, we were not allowed to play like all of the South and much of the Midwest and Middle America would um, it just they were not booking us. And the college places that we were booked a lot of times when the promoters realized the racial makeup of the group, they tried to have us play for segregated audiences. And, you know, we were having none of that nonsense. So, um so we had all of these things to contend with, you know. So as I mentioned before, it was not all peace and love. And so th that kind of, that was our mindset. And so as Arthur wrote the words to these songs and the melodies, but the group, Brian, Kenny, Michael, and myself, we did the music because Arthur was not a musician at that time at all. He played a little bit of keyboards as long as it was in the key of C. But he didn't play guitar at all. So he would sing the melodies all the time. When we were around Arthur, he would always be singing one of the songs. And so they became very familiar to us, just the, you know, the words and melodies. And we put that together 
uh, as a group, like Arthur would sing and he'd say, oh, I like that and, and I don't like that. And so that's basically how we put things together. And once we played a part, he would remember that, even though it may have been something that we played amongst, you know, several different things, he would remember the part that he liked. And that would be part of his song that, you know, it was just etched in stone. So we were required to remember something that we may have played weeks before and, you know, put it together as part of the song. So it was fascinating to the way our songs came together because they didn't come together the way normal groups do where you sit down and somebody says, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. And it, it wasn't like that at all. You mentioned obviously being an interracial group and the, the, the perils of touring like the South at that point and other areas. And there really weren't a lot of interracial rock groups at the time. Um, right. Were you guys conscious from the start that this was sort of a pioneering, you know, effort in that regard, or was it more like well, we're just a rock group and you know just treat the us thing like was, see, we grew up in Los Angeles and and kind of a cosmopolitan, diverse area, and um, all of our friends were different races. In the school that we went to, we went to different we high school and and um, junior high school. They were all you know diverse. And so we wanted to reflect the reality in which we lived in our group. And so we put together the best people to play the kind of music that we wanted to play. But we also did not want to be typecast because, you see, if we were an all black group, we would have been basically typecast as an R&B group and we'd have been stuck in that niche. And we didn't want that. We wanted to be, you know, a universal group, someone that a group that could play and, you know, all sorts of music and all sorts of venues, you know, and we didn't want to be stuck as, you know, um, an R&B group. So that was basically why we had a diverse interracial group. So you and Arthur Lee actually knew each other growing up in Memphis, right? Correct. Yeah. Our, our actually, see, his mother was a bit older when she was in her late 40s when Arthur was born. So Arthur's mother and my grandmother were school teachers in Memphis, but they were best friends. So our families go back to before our parents were even born, actually. And so, um, yeah, we had a, a long, long history. Would you guys like listen to records together back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We basically... Um, we were kind of eclectic in our tastes. We listened to everything. We listened to rock and, you know, country. And uh, especially in Memphis, there was this gentleman named Dewey Phillips, and he had a country uh, show, and we would listen to him. And uh, Rufus Thomas, he was on. Right. Um, yeah, we listened to him and Muhart Williams. There were so many people. WDIA was the, the station that he worked for. And so uh, you didn't have all of the things that you have now, basically. So, you know, where you had these choices of things, you had basically a few disc jockeys and a few uh, radio stations that you could listen to. And so we basically formed our musical background through listening to country and R and B and old school blues and you know and um, if you listen to music on the radio back in the sixties, you might hear Frank Sinatra and then sure. you would hear uh, Iron Butterfly or somebody you know on the same station. That's how it was. You know the music was diverse and eclectic. It wasn't just you know in a genre where now you listen to a station and they play all the same music. It wasn't like that then. So what was like the first record you fell in love with? 
the record called Honky Talk by Bill Doggett. When I first started playing the guitar around, I think it was around eight or nine, and there was this song that and everybody played it. And so there was this really cool uh, guitar solo by Billy Butler. And you learned it note for note, you know, because everybody knew that. So you had to play it right. And so that was one of my first uh, experiences and one of the first records that I actually bought and learned how to play. I saw something that in high school you were playing like weddings and bar mitzvahs with Billy Preston. Correct. Yeah, I knew Billy since junior high school. So we started our first group was Billy Preston and, and myself. And then later, Henry Vestine of Can later of Can Heat was a part of that group too. So we would play frat parties. Basically, that was our thing, playing fraternity parties. So every weekend we would go up and down California. We go as far as Sacramento or as south as uh San Diego. And we would play all of these gigs and we just had a blast. It was so cool. So that's after you moved to L.A. and Arthur Lee also moved to L.A. Oh, yeah. We moved to L.A. when we were kids. You know, I was about, I think, five or six. No, I was in the first grade or so. So I was five, I think. And Arthur was a couple of years older. So he, his family moved to Los Angeles first. And within a few months, our family moved. And just by happenstance, serendipity, we ended up living just a couple of doors down from each other in Los Angeles. It wasn't planned. It just happened that way. And you backed Little Richard and met the Beatles. That was something else. Yeah, I, I played with Little Richard. I think I was 14 or 15. There's a club called uh, the Californian Club in uh, Los Angeles. And I played there and was part of the backup band. And so I played with Billy Preston and we played uh, songs for Little Richard and... Uh, Whichever group came to, through that club, the Nightlife or California Club or the 5-4 Ballroom, these were clubs that we played consistently. And um, so, yeah, we did play with, with uh, Little Richard quite a bit back then. So, so what was the Beatles connection? Well, when uh, Richard toured England, I think those would have been 63 I had to come home. I went there to tour with, with Richard and Billy, but I had to come home. There was a family emergency, so I didn't get to stay and, and play. But we met these guys, and they um, were the Beatles. We didn't know them as the Beatles. I don't think I even knew their names back then, but I recall them following Richard around and being you know so just enamored with him. And they were kind of like, I don't want to use the word in the pejorative, but they were kind of like sycophants. You know, they just followed him around and they were so enthralled with him. And um, later on, when I got back to uh, Los Angeles, Billy and I were playing at the nightlight and they had sent these tickets for us to go backstage and, and to the Hollywood Bowl performance. And then I put it together because I didn't realize that those guys <laughs> that we saw in, in England were the Beatles, the biggest thing in the world. So, yeah, we got to go backstage and hang out with them at, at the Hollywood Bowl. And that was really cool. So what point did you and Arthur start working on music together? Yeah, we started, well, Arthur and I started in high school. He came to an assembly, you know, as kind of a talent show at school. And he saw all of the attention that Billy and I were getting from the girls, you know. And so he asked if he could join. Well, at that point, Arthur was not a musician at all. He could sing a bit. And I knew he wrote 
poetry. That was his thing, writing poetry. But I did not put it together that he could actually perform and play. So when Billy left, Arthur joined us and he played conga drums and bongo drums and, you know, as a percussionist. And later he moved to vocals and he had a rapport with the audience that the rest of us didn't have. So basically he started from there and he was, you know, our front man, so to speak. We still did covers for a long time. We covered the top 40 on the radio or or, um, things that were popular at frat parties, but we didn't necessarily write our own songs. And then we started doing, you know, when we saw the birds at uh, Cyril's, we started writing our own material and Arthur's poetry we put to music. And that's basically how that came about. Right. The first song and first single, uh, you know, from the first album is uh, My Little Red Book, which is mm-hmm. Burt Bacharach song that became a bit of a hit for you guys. Then, of course, and Hey Joe's on there and then a lot of, you know, Arthur Lee songs and a few that you you co-wrote as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what was the process like? And at what point did you realize that he was sort of a major songwriter and, you know, could sort of drive that aspect of it? Well, that happened, I think, gradually because, you know, we were still interspersing top 40 songs or with our own songs. And when we played, uh, we played these little clubs in Hollywood, people started asking for the songs for our songs. And so we started playing those types of songs more and more. But my little red book was, it's a funny thing. We went to see uh, What's New Pussycat at the Groman's Chinese Theater in, in Hollywood. And the soundtrack of that was my little red book. And we would hear this just interspersed throughout the movie. You'd hear parts and little snippets of this song. So I went home and tried to learn it just by hearing it. And, and when I go to play the damn thing, I get it wrong. I get the chord structure wrong and most of the words wrong. So, but by then we had, I had taught it to the rest of the guys. And so we ended up playing Bert's song wrong. And, you know, we could have used different, probably some different words and gotten away with claiming that we wrote it because it's so different from Bert Backrack's song. So we were surprised when the record company decided to release that because we went in and basically played our whole set on the uh, record because we played these songs night after night. So we were ready. And so we usually did them in one or two takes on the first album. And then uh, Jack Olsman chose my little red book as our single, which as I say, was shocking to us because we didn't expect that. You co-wrote Can't Explain. That one really pushes forward, uh, You All Be Following. I mean, there are a lot of great songs on that first album. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Actually, we were not that happy with the way the record came, you know, turned out because we were a really hard driving rock group and we were loud and boisterous and in your face. And it does not quite, you know, uh, reflect that in the record. You, it's a decent record, but our live gigs were so, so much better than the record. And that put, put us at loggerheads with the, the record company because we thought they should have been able to record our live sounds better than they did. And so we weren't happy with them at all. Well, it definitely has that chimey, you know, Rickenbacker jangly sound to it. That's and correct. you do sound like a really driving band, but it's not like a loud sound. It's more of a chimey sound. Right. Yeah, no, but we were live when we were live. We were boisterous and in your faces. I say we would have, you know, literally thousands of kids show up at Beat Olitos. Now, Beat Olitos only held about, 
maybe 100 people, 75 to 100 people. But we played on a place called Cosmos Alley, which is where Beat Olitos is. So it was a private street. And so they blocked off one end, both ends and put these huge voice of the theater speakers there. And so there would be a humongous crowd outside that never actually got to see the group play. And they were dancing in the street. And of course, the Doors and later the Iron Butterfly and all of these other groups played at this club, but they did not draw quite the audience that we did. And, and I never really understood why that group was taken to heart so much by the young kids at the time. So Love was the first band, first rock band signed to Electra, and the Doors were were signed after you guys. But really, like you, you sort of pushed the doors open for rock bands on that label. Yeah, actually, we had this. There's a story here. We had been offered a humongous sum of money by MCA to leave uh, Electra. They had been trying to sign us all along, but Electra was the only company that would allow us to own the publishing to our songs. We owned the grassroots music. And all of the other companies would insist that you sign with their publishing company because the publishing company, actually publishing of the music is where most of the money is because um, through federal laws and copyright laws and things like that, you get paid. Whereas with a recording, with a record, they'll, they'll say, well, you didn't make up the studio time or whatever. They will find some reason not to pay you all of the money, but for the publishing, they have to pay you. So most of our money came from publishing. And so, um, as I say, MCA, and we had an offer from Columbia and Capital, but they wouldn't let us own it. So later on, MCA again decided they wanted to sign the group. So they were going to buy us from Electra, just buy our contract out. And, but the lecture was having none of that. So we came up with the brilliant idea that if we hooked them up with the doors, that a lecture would let us go. And of course, it didn't turn out that way. They signed the doors and the doors just took off and all of the promotional monies and efforts that would have gone into promoting love now went into the doors. So we basically shot ourselves in the ass by doing that. Early on doors, like how much were the doors influenced by you guys and Jim Morrison by Arthur Lee. Yeah, Jim was definitely influenced by Arthur, but Jim just had this magnetic personality, even though he was difficult to deal with. He was my friend and I loved him, but he was also a handful because he was an alcoholic and you never knew what you were going to get with them if they came on stage because they didn't have a bass player. So they sounded, they were very light. And if Jim wasn't on, then the group sucked. But if Jim was on, then they really sounded cool. But the thing was, they did not have that rock sound because they didn't have a bass. Raymond Zarek is playing with the organ pedal. Right, yeah. So It was like his left hand or his foot. So they were very kind of a soft rock group, basically. But, you know, they had an appeal and, and their songs were so cool. And people came and they just basically came to see what Jim was going to do next because he could, you know, do these obscene songs and, and gestures. And even then before he got in trouble, he was doing that, you know, that was just his shtick, you know, and the kids loved it and they came to see them. But, um, you know, the, the idea of doing that, we thought, because we were still kids at the time and we did not understand the business aspect of it. And there was no way in hell Electra was going to allow us to leave. So 
anyway, that as I say, that was a, a huge mistake on our parts because the promotion of love just basically stopped at that point when the doors took off. Yeah, I've seen that that there are various times where uh, Arthur and you went in and were trying to get the band off the label, like after after the first album, after Decapo, Capo, the second album. Like from the start, it seems like there was conflict with the label. Was it just just over the direction of the band and then the promotion of the band? Arthur and I had um, had deals and and record deals with Delphi or Selma Records. We had a deal with Columbia Records and uh, Capitol Records, and we released songs on those labels, and they did nothing. Like on Capitol, we did a song called Rumpelstiltskin and The Golden Boy. And on um, Selma or Delphi Records, we had a song called Soul Food and Lucy Baines, and these records didn't really take off. Was that as the grassroots? Yeah, we were the grassroots and we were the American Four. We were Arthur Lee and the LAGs, you know. So we had several different names depending on uh, which label we were signed with basically at the time. So um, we never really, you know, expected the thing that we did with Electra to take off. We just, you know, as I said, none of the others did. So we had no reason to believe that this would be any different. So when it started to take off, we realized that it could have been so, so much better. But Jack Holtzman was a folk producer and a folk engineer. And that's what Electra did is folk music. And so us signing with them, we, as I mentioned before, we signed because they allowed us to own the publishing. But they were the wrong label for us sound-wise because they just didn't understand the dynamics of a rock and roll group. Like they would try to change the settings and make it sound pristine and clear when we wanted to be loud and raucous and distorted. So it was just hard to get them to understand what we wanted to do musically. But you kind of made your point with Seven and Seven Is, which was the the single that came out between the first two albums and then ended up on DiCapo, the second album. But that, yes. but that song was like one of the most explosive rock singles, like literal explosive. There's an explosion at the end. You know, It's hard to think of anything that had that kind of energy coming out in 1966. No, I don't think anything did. And that was so difficult to get them to understand because, you know, this thing has a vibrato on the guitar, this song. And, um, Snoopy, the drummer, had to keep up with that vibrato. And they kept telling us, let's just do it in the mix. And I tried explaining to them, you can't do it later because this has to be an integral part of the song. And if we're not playing together at the same time, we can never actually be in sync. And that was the problem doing that. It probably took us 100 takes to get the song right because if Snoopy was off even a little, because see the, the vibrato, this is unwavering. It stays the same every time. And normally drummers will kind of slow down and speed up in the group. If they play together long enough, they can anticipate this and just play along with it. Well, when you have a thing that's like basically a clip track and it's unwavering, you have to play to that and everything has to be in sync. Otherwise it just, you know, Right. And it's just a really tight, fast song. So there's no there's no room for, you know, relaxing on it or anything. No, no room for you to slow down and do anything. You have to be on the money throughout that song from the beginning to the end. And so 
there would be a little glitch or something would happen or whatever, or then they would stop it because our mics are bleeding, our songs are bleeding into the mics and they're trying to get a pristine recording and we're trying to explain them, no, this isn't, this is a loud kind of controlled chaos and it can't be, you know, we need a distorted bass. And Kenny probably was the first time they actually used, because um, we were signed with Vox Instruments and they had this new thing that they came up with a pedal for the bass and it was a distorted bass pedal. And that was basically a no-no back then. You know, they want the bass to sound pristine. So it, uh, and they want to compress the hell out of it. So the needle doesn't jump out of the tracks, which they did often on, you know, when a bass is too loud. So it was really difficult to get them to allow us to do the song the way we did it. But finally, they just basically gave up and and we ended up with the song we had. I think I saw somewhere that Arthur tried playing the drums on a few of those hundred takes. Yeah, but Arthur wasn't a drummer any more than Snoopy. Snoopy was a concert pianist. And the reason we had him play drums was our original drummer, Don Conco, who was just basically a Keith Moon type drummer. He was really just a fantastic drummer, but he was also a heroin addict at the time. And he would show up one night and not show up the next night, or we'd buy him a set of drums and he'd trade him to the dope dealer for drugs. So we, he was just totally undependable. And so uh, Snoopy could play a little bit on drums. He could keep time. So that was basically, he was a fill-in drummer for Don Conca. Is Don Conca the DC of Sign DC? Correct. Yes, that's him. Yeah, so Sign DC, I'll just say this for our listeners here, is this stunning you know, haunting ballad on the first album um, about someone who, who is obviously suffering from a, a major drug addiction, and uh, it is it's it's the it's total change of pace from everything else on that record. It's this acoustic haunting song. Yeah, we had hoped that would be a wake up call for him. Doing you know just putting his business in the street, so to speak, like that. And we thought that maybe that would shake him out of it, and he because. Don Conco was probably one of the best drummers, rock and roll drummers ever. The man, he was just fantastic. And when he was playing with our group, we were just a different group. And it just, we were so, you know, kind of, we wanted him to play so badly and we did everything we could to get him together. But, you know, the drugs had basically taken over his life, his soul, and uh, we could not get him to stop. So for the second album, to Capo, that was like a, you know, for a second album, there's also just like a, a huge sort of leap that you're making in terms of these kind of jazzier arrangements and the feel of it. And it doesn't really feel like the first album at all. The first album has that, again, that jangly birdsy sound. And this has these flutes on it and sort of jazzy chords and everything. When you were making it, did you guys think, wow, we're taking this real big leap forward at the time? Yes, we did. We uh, had a different, because as I mentioned before, we were unhappy with the first album. So this one was recorded at RCA rather than uh, Sunset Sound, where the first album was recorded. And uh, Bruce Botnick was the engineer on the first album. Dave Hassinger, who had engineered the Rolling Stones and several other groups, was our engineer. So we thought we were going to do an adult song, basically, an adult album, rather. And um, so we consciously 
change direction toward a kind of a jazz fusion, because that was really what we wanted to do. We wanted to do a kind of a fusion of jazz, R&B and rock and roll and just put them together. And, you know, and that's what the couple turned out to be. Was it a challenge to play that stuff for you? No, no, that was where we were. We, you know, it, we were more comfortable playing that kind of music than we were playing the jangly birdsy kind of music, even though, as I said, we at that point were loud and in your face when we really, when we were settling down or playing or doing the frat parties, we were more inclined toward the jazzy kind of thing. This, you know, music that had um, a beginning, a middle and an end, and it wasn't just long jams, you know. Right. That whole first side is this perfect side. It ends with She Comes in Colors, which has, again, a lot of different complicated stuff going on. But each one is about three minutes long and really catchy. When you first heard the Rolling Stones song, She's a Rainbow, did you guys think, whoa, that's like, these guys are ripping us off with She Comes in Colors? Absolutely. But they were known for that kind of stuff because they had ripped us off earlier. There's a song called Going Home. And if you listen to that, even the little grunts that Arthur does or that I do, because it's Arthur and me both singing that song, they take, they replicate them and going home. So he's just basically, because Mick had come to the whiskey once and he saw us playing this and they kind of cornered me and asked me how the audience responded to a song that, that was that long. Basically, we played the song the whole set and that, you know, he asked all kinds of questions about it and, um, a little bit later, just I think his came out maybe a week or two before ours did, but uh, they put Going Home out and then Revelation. And if you listen to the, especially the entirety of it, huh. you'll see where they just read this right off. Well, it's funny because like those are the two like 1966 songs that are really, really long on records. Mm -hmm. And you didn't right. have a lot. You did not have a lot of that back then. Right. So. No, you didn't. So anyway, it's okay. That's musicians kind of borrow from each other. So it was, you know, kind of flattering actually it wasn't, you know, like today people are so litigious. They go into court immediately. The song has one of the same lyrics or same chord structure or something. But no, back then you just, you know, that was the way it was. Somebody borrowed from you, you're flattered and you move on. Then side two, you have the sidelong jam session that a lot of people maybe, or I certainly don't listen to as much as side one. Did you always think, okay, this is going to be like this album where the first side is like these great songs and the second side is this long jam? Well, yeah, because see, that long jam was no, was called John Lee Hooker, but we couldn't get permission to use John Lee Hooker as the title of the song. So they changed it to Revelation on the album. But that song was one of the first songs we ever did or ever wrote as a group. And we would sometimes, uh, when we're playing clubs called The Brave New World or Beatolitos, we'd play that one song for a whole entire set. And, you know, so it would go through all these changes the way jazz musicians did, you know, where they take these long extended solos. And that was our calling card. We were basically the first uh, L.A. jam band. And later on, they started doing that in San Francisco and places. But playing these long extended solos, you know, emulating jazz musicians is what we did. And as I said, that was our signature. And so, of course, we would put that on an album. But... As I said, when we recorded it, we recorded it about an hour and 20 minutes. 
And so then he had to cut an hour and 20 minutes down to about 18 minutes. And so it's kind of meanders and it loses its cohesiveness. But it was an actual song that, you know, had structure. But because um, this was Paul Rothschild and he had not heard us play this song live and he had to cut it down. So basically he took it upon himself, basically, to just, you know, to chop it all to hell. So the song that you hear is not the song that we played. Were you guys playing out much around this time? Like, were you playing in L.A. a lot? Were you actually touring at all? We were playing a lot in L.A. because, that you know, we could fill up any venue we played in from uh, small clubs to the Hollywood Bowl, which we played. So we filled them up and played all of these, you know, places in Earl Warren Showground, which held thousands of people, or we played places in Sacramento. So there were enough places in California to keep us busy playing, you know, several times a week. And we did tour um, briefly. We toured for the first album. We went to uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, that was the only time. Well, that was the one of the only times. The other time we played in Miami. But other than that, we didn't play in the South because, I, as I mentioned before, we couldn't. But uh, we were invited. They had a promotional deal with Love Field, which is the, the airport in Dallas, Texas, called Love Field, and the group Love. So they had a promotional tie-in and. They gave us the key to the city, and um, we had autograph signing, signings at Neiman Marcus. So that was part of uh, one of the few times we toured for the first album. Now, when we get to Forever Changes, we toured quite extensively on the East Coast and the West Coast, basically. You know, we went up and down the East Coast and all, you know, we always played on the West Coast here. So that was our audience, basically. So the rest of America never got to see us. So and then DeCapo, you didn't tour as much except for in California? Right. We just did California because by, by that time, the doors were, were breaking. And so the record company wasn't putting the money into us touring. They were spending the money on the doors, which uh, was a wise business decision, of course, but it was not helpful for us, you know. At what Music point would you would you say that Love sort of peaked as a band, just as like a band of musicians playing together? Would it have been around DeCapo or Forever Changes? I think as far as our audience, we peaked after the first album because we were, you know, playing all the time. When we did DeCapo, we still had a nice audience, a good audience, and we were able to you know, fill up these venues, but musically and as far as, as the excitement and, and um, love being, you know, just the end thing, the first album would have probably been, you know, the one where we were at our peak. And then from then we kind of leveled off with the capo and forever changes. Uh, we kind of lost our audience quite a bit because, you know, this was a, this is an adult album. It's a totally different, we just went in a totally different direction and the audience didn't necessarily go with us. So we rarely played songs. We played, I think a house is not a motel and a couple of other songs off of bummer in the summer off of, um, forever changes, but we didn't play any of the songs that, you know, the, the songs that had strings and all of them. Of course, we couldn't play them, but we didn't play those live at all. So at this point, you have Arthur Lee and then Brian McLean writing songs and Arthur's writing more of them. 
Was there a difference in how they would each present the songs to the band? Yes. Let's see, Arthur, as I mentioned before, he's basically uh, would sing these songs to us and leave it up to us to put the music together to his songs. He trusted that we would do that. Brian would come with a song basically already put together, but his songs were uh, kind of pie in the sky, Broadway, folky songs, and they did not have an audience. So we would have to basically rewrite all of Brian's songs. So like, uh, if you listen to um, Orange Skies, Brian does it. You can find it on YouTube. It's an entirely different song. And so is Alone Again, which is a humongous song. It's just, you know, sold and been covered probably 50 times or more. And but the song that Brian wrote was kind of a bluegrassy song, folky song, and it was changed by us and David Angel, the uh, arranger in the studio. And it turned into he put the mariachi trumpet part in there. And I did the finger picking, uh, the kind of Spanish style, which was totally different than the song was initially. So, yeah, we did change Brian's songs quite a bit. Yeah, the other thing on Alone Again or that I always found interesting is that Brian and Arthur are singing it together and Arthur ostensibly would be doing the the harmony vocal, but his is the vocal you key in on. And so it's like the part that Arthur's singing is the part that you think is the melody of the song. And Brian seems like he's sort of the background singer. And I'm guessing that what he's singing is maybe what he came up with originally. Yeah, and that was the problem there because... Arthur, see, when we did Alone Again, Arthur added the oar on it. It was called Alone Again. Um, Arthur wasn't even in the studio when we did it. He didn't hear it until later on when it was mixed down. And he saw, saw how great it sounded. And he just insinuated himself into it because he could at that point and just took over Brian's song. And Brian didn't appreciate that. No, he didn't. He didn't appreciate it at all. You know, we were having serious, serious difficulties because, you know, we felt that all of us felt that we weren't getting the proper recognitions for our work. You know, we're basically writing Arthur's songs and he's getting all of the credit for it. So when we did Forever Changes, we were told that it would be a double album. So Brian and I worked on songs and Arthur would have the full album and Brian and I would have one half side each. And we go to the studio and the record company had reneged on their promises. And they said that it was too expensive to do a double album. So we would have to do the other portion later. And of course, that caused hard feelings. And Brian basically a minor mutiny. He wouldn't play Arthur's songs the way he normally would have. And so we had a lot of problems finishing Forever Changes, but fortunately we were able to come together and get it done. But there were a lot of changes um, in order to get this record done. And I think it sowed the seeds for our eventually breaking up. So was Brian not playing on Arthur's songs at that point? Yeah, he was bass playing or just just doing very rudimentary, simple stuff. And it just didn't sound like us. And it was not helpful at all. And so um, Electra brought in the guys from the Wrecking Crew and they tried playing it, but they didn't sound like us at all. So they're on one song, I think they're on. um, I think uh, they're on and Morgan and the Daily Planet. Yeah. And the Daily Planet. Yeah. Well, he's playing Billy Strange plays guitar with us on um, and Morgan. So he's the only one on that. And on um, Daily Planet, Hal Blaine replaces Mike Stewart on drums. 
And um, I think Don Randy's playing with us and a couple other, but Carol Kay never plays on anything. Kenny Forsey is playing the bass on that song. So she initially was playing it. And then we could see Kenny's trying to teach her how to play what he would play. And she's a very headstrong lady. And she wasn't playing the song the same way we did. So uh, we got together and said, this doesn't make any sense. Kenny's right here, so let him play the song. And so he did. I'd seen something also in a few places, including, I think, the liner notes of the that Love Story double CD that came out years ago, that Neil Young had arranged the Daily Planet or was brought in to work on it somehow. Neil Young was our friend. We hung with Neil and smoked dope with him. And, you know, we were friends. Now, there was no way in hell that we we're going to listen to Neil as a producer. But we didn't know he would be there. So uh, he was a friend of Bruce Botnick's also. And Neil at that point was on the verge of being evicted from his apartment. So Bruce was trying to get him a payday. And so he came in to act as producer. But when we saw that it was Neil, we started laughing and joking around. And, And so Neil actually had no input on anything. He was there for maybe a half hour and then he finally left and I think um, Electra gave him a couple grand for being there, and that was enough to save him, keep him from being evicted. But he had absolutely nothing to do with anything. And the idea of the wrecking crew coming in, I've seen different reasons for that. You know, one of them was that, you know, at the time for the band for to come back and uh, do Forever Changes, that some of the band were like in sort of bad physical shape, musical shape, you know, too many drugs going around. And that it was sort of a wake up call to the band to bring in other musicians to kind of like get you guys to realize it's serious. You guys got to get your act together and do this album is that no that wasn't what it was happening at all what was happening is as i mentioned it was to be a double album and then the record company decided at that point that they couldn't afford to do that or wouldn't do it whatever their reasoning was they didn't um come through on on the the double album so brian as i say was really pissed off and all of us were but brian especially and since he wasn't playing these songs or sometimes wasn't even showing up at the studio even to play them it was just you know a mess and so they brought the wrecking crew in and what they were going to do initially was play the background the backing tracks brian and i would come in and play the leads and the things that i did and he would do the things that he did and um, it would be released that way. But these guys are fantastic musicians, but they didn't sound like us. And so when they were playing there in the studios, they realized that they couldn't uh, pull that off and, and pass this off as love. It just wouldn't work. So it had nothing to do, you know, the drug and all of that stuff started happening later. But at that point, it was just totally because we expected to do a double album and so, we were recalcitrant children at that point, so huh. we wouldn't play it right. So, so at some point, then it was decided that that Brian's songs uh, "Alone Again" or and "Old Man" would just end up on Forever Changes, and and you were working on other stuff, and nothing happened with it. Yeah, nothing. It just we ended up doing it. Um, I think a couple of songs we started on that were mine in. We still had really, really negative feelings toward the record company. And so um, the song that was to be mine on the album, Brian was still upset that he didn't have more songs on the album. So I gave up mine in order for Brian to have an 
old man. So at that, I still have kind of negative feelings about that. When we play old man, sometimes if we play it at all, I will sit down or do something else because, you know, I still just, you know, of course it is stupid, but I just don't, don't play the song. To me, it's sort of the least necessary song on that album, but although I think that album yes. is so great, but yeah. what was the, what was the song that you would have had on there? It was called America. And it was a kind of a song that spoke to the the discord that was going on in the country because we had riots in the street and kids because of the, the Vietnam War burning flags and all of that. So my song would, would have been called A-M-E-R-I-K-A. And um, it just spoke to that. And I still have a version of it around here somewhere. And at some point, maybe it will be released. I don't know. And the other songs that I did, of course, they just went by the wayside. And and we, at that point, were so pissed off with each other, and especially Arthur, because he did not help, in other words, to, to get the record company to do as they promised because he was getting his way. So he basically didn't give a damn if Brian or, or I had our input because he got his. So that was, again, as I said before, this album sowed the seeds for our eventual demise as a group because we didn't trust each other any longer and we Mm. were still very, very upset. Going into Forever Changes, when when it was finally decided, you know, it was going to be the single album, was it from the start, the, the thought that it would be more of sort of an acoustic orchestral record as opposed to the sort of more electric jazzy stuff that was on DeCapo? Yes, yes. We had um, intended for this song to be an adult album. We'd learned a new word, a new phrase called magnum opus. And we were going to, this was going to be our magnum opus. So we had listened to uh, Sergeant Pepper and the way this was. So we wanted to kind of do something in that vein. Leon Russell, we did quite a bit of it at his studio. And um, we did it at Sunset Sound and also Western Sound Recorder. So we had three different, several different engineers. And so this song um, was put together kind of like a puzzle, like a collage, you know. And uh, we initially started out, as I said, as as more acoustical. And then we planned to add the strings and the horns and other aspects later. But we didn't know because we the record company had already reneged on the double album. We didn't know if they would pay for the orchestra and the studio musicians to come in. So it was difficult to do this song because we had to leave room for strings and horns. But... We also had to make sure that if they didn't uh, appear on the album, that it would still be a full sounding album. So it was really, really a difficult album to do. It was, oh gosh, it it was just chaotic. And you listen to this album and you, you just can't imagine all of the turmoil that was happening around it. We used to ride around all over town, but they're putting you down for being around with me. But you can go ahead if you want to Cause I got no papers on you No, I don't I ain't got no papers on myself Revolution Brewing is Illinois' largest independently owned brewery and its beers are brewed only in Chicago using pure Lake Michigan water. If you enjoy comic books that are actually beer, you'll love issue number 19 of Revolution's League of Heroes IPA Variety Pack. 
takes you back to the arcade days with a relatively new beer style, Cold IPA, plus Subs Hero, Action Hero Hazy IPA, and the all-new Arcade Hero. Enjoy these super beeros and follow Rev Brew Chicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Part of that, that album, too, it's that's so fascinating is that it's considered kind of a summer of love record in that it's, you know, it's love and it didn't come out in the summer. It came out in the fall. But mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of the come down from the summer of love because it's much more stark and dark in, in its lyrics. And I mean, I, I get chills hearing that now and listening to what's going on in the world. So it was definitely like this reaction to sort of the reality of the world, even as you were being very ambitious with the music side of it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We were living in it. You know, people look back on that time with fondness and, you know, thinking of it as peace and love, but it just wasn't. You know, we, when we were tour later, police would actually come to our hotel rooms and, and they would watch us and stuff because we were, you know, basically our country was headed toward being a police state during that time when all of the, you know, the assassinations and the upheavals that were happening on college campuses. So this is a very, very different country. So the song reflected that, the album rather, reflected the darkness that we were living in. And also, as I said, we're having turmoil within the group and then the outside influences, all of this stuff going on. And I'm just amazed that we actually produced an album and that it turned out as well as it did. And then that it's actually actually considered relevant, you know, 55 years later. It's just amazing. No, it's this beautiful album. And it's also just an album that for me just kind of occupies a space that no other record does. Like there are a bunch of albums I have where you're like, oh, I'm in the mood for that kind of album. But then there's just there's just forever changes. And that's just forever changes. Yeah, it's it's in its own space, but it seems like that album had to be done. It 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 sort of created itself like the universe put this together because when you just take the take it apart and what was happening to our lives and to us and to see those people actually came together to create this it's just amazing to me because i know the full backstory and how this all came together and ended up where it did. It's just really fascinating. It would be a wonderful movie if they could just put together the times that were happening and the recording of this album. It's just fascinating. More than 55 years after it came out, I think that, you know, in terms of rock history, it's considered one of the greatest albums ever made. I certainly would would call it one of them. It's a Desert Island disc for me. Mm-hmm. When you finished it, did you have any sense that it was that kind of achievement and were you recognized as such at all at the time? We knew this was something special because we were, as I said, amazed when we listened to it and it was just, there it was, you know, this was it. This was our magnum opus. We were going to, it was our breakout album and it just kind of stayed there. I think it got to a hundred on the charts or something in the U S it's so it was a lot higher in England and Europe, and it was, you know, appreciated and lauded there. But here it just kind of was just there. It was, you know, sort of ignored by the radio stations and the record company did not get behind it as much. So when we toured and played, we rarely played songs from the album. So it was just an orphan, you know, it was out there. But um, it 
always had a space that always wanted to be pulled forward. But, it, you know, it's like it's it's hard to describe. The songs on that album were so, they were right on. They were speaking to the times in which we lived. And it just was amazing to me that everybody else didn't catch on to that until much, much later. It just all of a sudden, college kids and, and radio stations started picking up on it. And they were playing it. And especially in Europe in England, you know, it's had a huge audience and still does. So. Right. Yeah. There was always this, that sense that it was a, it was especially celebrated in England. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess I have more British tastes or something, even though it's an <laughs> American album. Um, was there at some point, you know, it's specific where you thought, wow, this album has kind of broken through at last. Well, yeah, that was long after the group had broken up. The album started uh, residuals and royalty checks started to come in, and then all of a sudden, more and more and more money's coming in from this album. And then, so we realized that it has an audience, it just gained an audience through word of mouth, basically. And then, Liverpool, it just sold, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of records just in that one area of, of Liverpool. It was just amazing. Yeah. And now, of course, it's gone platinum probably several times over. And, you know, a couple of years ago, just right before the pandemic, we had over 90,000 people show up in Sefton Park to see us. That's in England. And so um, we have a humongous audience. We're on our way back. We'll be going back in a couple of weeks to tour the UK and Wales and, and parts of Europe. So that's where our audience is. It's, you know, when we get there, it's a whole different scene because the people all know these songs. They know, you know, so we can't do anything wrong. We have to play yeah. them exactly like they were played. So, and we do, you know, we do, we do. So there was a single that came out after Forever Changes, which was Your Mind and We Belong Together and the flip side is Laughing Stock. And I think that's the last recording of that version of the band, right? Yes, yes, of love. The rest of those guys were Arthur's side men. So I never think of them as love. They were people that Arthur got together. He didn't pay them. They weren't signed to a record label. They were just guys. So um, they were Arthur Lee's band. Right from for sale on and and, and those are different different lineups every album just about after that too. Yes. Um, so your mind and we belong together is pretty crazy single. And then what caused you guys to not be together after that? Well, as I said, the hard feelings were just there, and we didn't know that Brian had worked out a separate deal in order for him to come back and do Arthur's songs right on Forever Changes. They were going to release. Uh, a single album by Brian. And we found that out later. And Arthur, or excuse me, Brian called me up and told me about it. And I said, wow, that's cool, Brian. They're going to record an album for you. Let's go in and tell Arthur. So I knew exactly what was going to happen. So we see Arthur, we go to his house and uh, we tell him that Brian has a, a deal with Electra to release a, an album. And Arthur said, wow, Brian, that's fantastic. You're fired. And that was that. Brian never played with us again, even though the group tried to get back together on a number of occasions. But um, that was that. Except, excuse me, I did. I misspoke. Later on, when in 95, this is years and years later, when um, uh, Rhino Records released uh, the Love Story set, we had gotten back together to tour and Brian and all of us were actually 
in rehearsal studios getting ready to tour. And that's when we find out that Arthur has this case and that he was um, arrested and, and uh, sent to prison. So that killed that. So you, Brian, and Arthur were actually rehearsing together at that point. Yes, yes. We had wow. started to rehearse. And we you know we just put all of our, you know, we had grown up. We were adults then. Because back when we first started doing Forever Changes, I think I was barely 18 years old. We were kids still. So um, we'd finally grown up. We were adults. And so we put all of that behind us, especially since touring would have been really lucrative at that point. Because we had... A, a huge audience, uh, especially in Europe. And so they were looking forward to it. We were looking forward to it. And then, then out of the blue, the universe just drops a bomb on us and, and Arthur goes to prison. Wow. So I'd read that Brian had quit. So Arthur fired Brian and not the other way around. Right. Arthur fired him on the spot. Of course, you know, Brian would later on say he quit, but no, no. He was, uh, this was supposed to just be a single album and he would still remain with love. So, and it was just the way it was done. So kind of surreptitiously without, you know, even discussing it with us. This is what rubbed everybody the wrong way. Right. It wasn't, you know, so, and that the record company, of course, Jack Holzman, again, you know, we just had at that point, no trust and no faith in him at all. And still to this day, we just, you know, are at loggerheads and, and snipe at each other whenever we get the opportunity. It's, you know, it's, it's too bad, but that's the way it is. Snipe at each other with Jack Holtzman? Yes. You know, he will say negative things about me. And I, of course, you know, I quadruple whatever he has to say so as i say it's it's not it, we're not acting you know in, in a positive way we're still you know it's still hard feelings and he's trying to explain his point of view and i can't see that he has a point of view that he's just dead ass wrong in all of this so that's the way it is as far as i'm concerned and i can't see any way that anything could convince me differently. We could not sit down in the same room and hatch it out because it, there's just, you know, there's reality and then there's his, you know, stuff that he makes. Huh. But then Nuggets is a Electra record that came out in 72, the original one, which Love is Not On, mm -hmm. um, that Jack Holtzman had Lenny Kay put together. And then you just had the 50th anniversary of it in which 7 and 7 is, is on on it and obviously you just performed at it so was that was that weird at all knowing that nuggets is a jack holtzman electra thing did you have to overcome any bad feelings to do that See, this is the weird thing i knew nothing about nuggets i had no idea i never heard the record before didn't know a thing at that point when that was released i was living in new york you know doing session work so i had no interest in you know whatever jack holzman or electra was doing so it was a total shock to me when i got here as a matter of fact to find out that he had anything to do with this and um you know they invited me to come and do seven and seven is and which of course i did but um no i was not aware of any of it arthur fires brian mclean at what point are the rest of you out like what happened there well, we just tried playing a few times. We played little clubs and places, and it just wasn't the same. And then we were offered a gig at uh, Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, and Brian was supposed to play. 
And so we thought, well, this is an opportunity to to bring everybody back together and and see if we can, you know, rebuild this and rebuild the trust. But um, then Brian just didn't show up. And so we played the Santa Monica Civic and it, you know, we played the songs, but our hearts weren't in it because this feeling on the stage wasn't the same. We didn't have the same camaraderie. And uh, Arthur had hired a manager, his own personal manager, and he was kind of interfering with things. So we realized at that point that it just wasn't going to work. And by then, we are full-fledged drug addicts by then. You know, by the time we do that, you know, even though we were, of course, able to play the songs, drugs were more of an influence on our lives than music was. And so we were more interested in doing that than playing music. So was this before or after For Sale had come out? This would have been after For Sale had come out. So how did because, how did he get to for sale with this totally different band? Like how did you guys not end up on that record? Well, see the thing was Arthur had played with a Dooney Ricketts group. Now the Grassroots was originally my group, and we played a place called the Brave New World. Arthur came there and he heard us playing, and he saw the audience that we were had uh, put together. And he decided he wanted to be a part of that. But before that, he was playing in Nooney Ricketts group in Reno. And Frank Fayette and a couple of the guys that were in that group ended up playing with him on um, For Sale. Now, the songs on For Sale, we had worked out as a group together. And Your Mind and We Belong Together would have been part of those songs. But since we were not uh, a group anymore, they play the songs, the people from Nooney Ricketts group. And so Arthur was basically able to put together an, a group and an album and all of that within a month's time because he had been working with those guys for years before. Is the reason he didn't work with you all at that point because Brian had left or the magic was gone? Or was it also that the drug addictions had kicked in and it just affected everyone too much? We didn't want to play then. By then, I think... Um, Michael Stewart Ware had gone off and was playing with Neil Diamond. And uh, gosh, I was just in a bad place myself. So playing music was just not something that I really wanted to do at that point. You know, I was more interested in chasing the dragon. So uh, it was just kind of a, we had fallen apart and it just was not uh, in the cards for us to come together. As I said, we tried several times. We rehearsed several times. We did these songs for for sale before the thing. But um, as far as us playing together, we just didn't like each other. That's that's the best description I can get of why I can give you of why is we just really did not like each other. Right. And you were on heroin, and some of the other yes. band members were as well, yes. uh, from what I've seen. So, how did you how did you recover from that? Like, how did you get through that? I moved to New York and that's the oddest thing. And it sounds like something out of a, a movie, but yeah, at the end of the evenings, usually on TV, they will have a, back then they would have a, a priest or a, a minister come on and kind of give a benediction. And they would say, you know, the, the, the ready, uh, the TV station is signing off. And the, sometimes a priest would come on and talk and give a blessing. And that would be a sign off. Well, so I'm in my hotel room in New York, and there's a priest, and he's saying, there is 
someone that is strung out on drugs and that his life is in turmoil. And if he wants to, there's a bed at Bernstein Institute today. All he has to do is call this number. It's like the universe did that for me because I could not wow. understand it. Yeah. And I called the number. And the next morning I went to Bernstein Institute and stayed there for 90 days. And I left and I was free of drugs and have been so since. Wow. Yeah. So it's like the universe stepped in and did that for me because, you know, when I talked to the priest, he just said someone called up and said, there's a bed free at Bernstein. And I just kind of ad lived the other part of it. And it was like he was talking to me, you know. So I don't understand it, but, it's, you know, I, I, I'm not a, a religious person, but the universe stepped in just to save me, and it did. Did, did that get you, you know, to love music again? Yes, then I, I did studio work, and I would play, and uh, I had the best gig. We were doing uh, blues for our Japanese radio station, so we just do little blues, blues things. You know, they were part of the commercials or whatever they would do on radio stations. And I played that for a long time, and I would play in local clubs in, in uh, New York. And so I got back into music quite a bit. And then um, I got married and had a family. And uh, as I said, I played, you know, studio work and did that for years. And uh, up until today, we still do studio work. I think I saw that you, you did work with Miles Davis. What did you do with him? Well, that Miles was more a, a friendship thing, and and he was kind of on a hiatus for music. He was more interested in painting then, and so we hung out together and played, you know. And so I was kind of instrumental in getting him back together. But mm -hmm. um, as far as on albums, we tried doing an album with a drum circle in the park. You know how these guys get together and guys playing on trash can lids and right. doing all this stuff. So we tried to put together a thing with those guys, but that just didn't work because people have to understand that you have to leave room for the soloist and Miles is, you know, very picky soloist. And these guys don't understand that. And if we tried to explain it to them, they would no longer be a, a spontaneous drum circle. Now we would be training them as musicians. So anyway, it was just a hodgepodge of noise. So it, it never did anything. What, what was the most satisfying studio gig that you had? Oh, gosh. Well, way back years ago, I used to play with Phil Spector. So I played in his stuff. But some of the most satisfying studio gigs was, I would guess, would be with uh, Delphi Records. Because I played with Glenn Campbell back then. He was kind of our mentor. And we played on a lot of stuff with them. So from the Bobby Full of Four, we did little things we played with them. And, oh gosh, Little Ray and the Sisters and a bunch of records that came out of Delphi we did. So how did you end up reuniting with Arthur Lee in the early 2000s? And what was that period like? I mean, you were basically touring with him until the time he died. Yeah, well, Arthur and I always talked together because our families are so close. So he would come sometimes come to New York and hang with me or I'd come to Los Angeles and hang with him. So we always, you know, there was that band that would be so cool if we could put it back together and we talked about it often but we just were never able to do it and then um brian died and then kenny died and that was just you know there was nothing left but the two of us you know remained friends and we were always talking and you know so um after arthur got out of prison we decided 
because there had been this buzz about um, the group getting back together or Arthur playing music. And so um, he played with the guys, as I mentioned, from Baby Lemonade first, and they were doing local gigs and playing around. And then there started to be more, more of an audience. And so he asked if I would come back and play with them. And I did. And I think it was 2003. I played sporadically then. And later on, I played with them consistently. And we toured Europe and uh, England and we had fantastic audiences. And so it felt like, wow, this, I mean, we were growing, you know, so, so much exponentially more than we had for, you know, ages. And so um, it just looked like this was our time. And so we took advantage of that. And I think it, it helped him uh, psychologically. And of course it helped me. Yeah, I saw the Forever Changes show at the Park West in Chicago in 2003 with the horn and string section. Yeah, And and I went in with kind of low expectations because I'm like, I knew he'd been in prison and I didn't really know what kind of shape he was in. And it was just one of the great concert experiences of my life because I love that album, as anyone listening can tell. Those years that you toured with him and then he died a few years later of leukemia, was he in a better place or was it still that same kind of mercurial up and down thing? He would go up and down, but he was in a much, much better place because, you know, things seems as though they were coming together and he's getting you know, all of these accolades and people are, you know, following the group and getting press, you know, and, and cover stories from magazines. So he was, you know, feeling a lot better about himself. But, you know, there was always that undercurrent there. And then, of course, he um, found out that he had leukemia when he moved to Memphis and um, so I went back there and, and saw him when he was in the hospital and, and before he passed. And, you know, we, we chatted and watched videos of our former gigs and, and stuff. And, you know, I knew in, in my heart that that he wasn't going to pull out of this. But we tried to keep his spirits up by telling him, yeah, because, you know, we talked of touring and, and made plans to go on the road and all of that. But, you know, I knew that that wasn't going to happen. It's really sad that, you know, he was still in those sort of troubled places late in his life. And then, you know, the leukemia took him At the same time. It's great that he got to receive the the love of being you know, in the band love and creating such great music and that there was this time where he, you know, he went through and and saw how much people thought the music was amazing as opposed to, I don't know, like your Nick Drakes of the world who really never mm -hmm. got to see how the music really lived on well after the time it was recorded. Yeah, see, the, the thing was the fan, the adulation, the recognition in itself was cathartic. And I think it was the best medicine in the world for, for Arthur at that point in life. It was redemption, you know, because he had gone to the lowest point and he's in prison, you know, and all of a sudden he's out of prison and in front of thousands and thousands of adoring fans. So that, you know, was just, as I say, cathartic. He needed yeah. that. And, and that helped him a great deal. And I think that kept him alive. But also, it's weird to say, but I think had he not gone to prison, I don't think he would have lived much longer at that point because he was in a downward, downward spiral. And I think it, it could not have ended well. So mm. uh, that's odd to say, but I think the prison experience saved his life. At what point after he was gone did you and the band decided that you wanted to continue putting the songs out in the world and touring? 
It would have been there because that was what he had wanted us to do. He wanted us to continue. And so just a few months later, um, we started getting back together and talking about uh, playing. So we played locally for a while. And then we uh, there was interest in us playing in the UK, which we did. And so we've gone back several times and, and played uh, in England and, and Scotland and Wales and Ireland and the entire UK. How about the U.S.? Well, we played some gigs. We we traveled uh, with. Well, that was with the Zombies. That would have been with Arthur. But later we traveled yeah, with. I remember uh, that the, tour. The Electric Prunes and Sky Saxton, of course, and we start out the the Route sixty six tour with Sky and Sky Passes. But we continued and we did that tour. Sam, I was trying to get to get everyone to come back to Chicago. So you have to come back to Chicago. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed playing in Chicago. It's, you know, I lived in Chicago for a while, so I love the city. It's it's really a neat place. Where in Chicago did you live? I lived in the near north side. That's what I can't remember the street, but I lived in the, the, the near north side. I think that's what it was called. What were you doing here? Um, I was doing uh, studio work there. I played at Brunswick, and I think I played what, what's what's this uh, Fill Up Church, and I played some sessions in, in, with them. How long and, ago was that? Oh gosh, that's been a long, long time. Yeah, We're talking, yeah way back in. The You're day. not talking about the '90s. You're talking about way earlier. Yeah, yeah. This would have been early. This would have been right after I left the group and and started. Um, on my way so my sojourn to get to New York, but I played in San Francisco and lived there for a while. Then I moved to Chicago and then on to New York. Well, that's great. Well, I'm, I'm so glad that you're still, you know, doing this music and uh, you sounded fantastic at that, that nugget show and playing sort of the extended little guitar solo at the end of seven and seven is, which fades out on the record. That was very uh-huh. cool. Thanks so much for, for talking to me and, and good luck with everything. Thank you. It's my pleasure. See you on the road. That's all for episode 89 of Carapop. Thanks so much to Johnny Eccles for reflecting on the making of such great music amid sometimes difficult circumstances. The Love Band featuring Johnny Eccles will soon play several dates in England, where the band is especially appreciated. The tour kicks off in Manchester on June 30th, then Liverpool July 1st, York July 2nd, and Glasgow, Scotland July 3rd, with more to follow. You can follow Eccles on Twitter at Johnny's Echo, J-O-H-N-N-Y-S-E-C-H-O. Also, if you don't have Forever Changes by now, it's time. And then work your way back to DeCapo and the self-titled debut. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who sets the scene. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Tickets are on sale now for my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.